Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome to the first episode of Inside Out. My name is Billy Samoa Salibi and I'm your host. Through interviews and case studies, I examine how transformational insights have helped propel the lives and careers of exceptionally successful people. These major breakthrough moments teach valuable lessons that will help us in business and in life. My first guest is a personal mentor of mine, Toby Corey. Toby is a serial entrepreneur responsible for managing three different billion-dollar businesses, including two successful IPOs and the merger of SolarCity into Tesla. He currently sits on the board for multiple companies and lectures on the subject of entrepreneurship at Stanford. On the show, we cover a wide range of topics, including a peek inside the world of neuroscience and how different types of brainwave activity can actually help us have more insights. We'll also learn about the Zentrepreneur philosophy. We'll find out what generation he's most optimistic about and what company he feels is the shining example of what a business should look like in the modern world. This show is jam-packed full of insights like these and others. So without further ado, let's get into the conversation with Toby Corey and the inaugural episode of Inside Out. Right. Well, Toby Corey, I am absolutely ecstatic to have you on the show. <laughs> and when I thought of who would be the ideal first guest for Insight Out, it was you. And I am thrilled that you have been able to make it on the show today. We got to chance to meet at our Solar City days. You were on your second tour of duty. And I had the good fortune of reporting to you. You gave me the opportunity to lead the training org for the sales team. And I'm just so grateful to have you in my life as a mentor, as an inspiration. And you have really just done some incredible things in your life. And there's a lot that you have learned along the way. You, to your own admission, you're imperfect. You're a flawed human being like we all are. But I think the insights that you've, through your journey, through your life journey, have really made you the human being that you are today. And aside from being an incredible person, you also have been lecturing for nine years at Stanford on entrepreneurship. You've started multiple businesses, taking them public. 
and have had enormous success. So why don't we start by first and foremost, just, I want to say welcome to the show. Welcome to Insight Out. And thank you for being my first guest. Bailey, I'm so honored. Thank you so much for reaching out. It's great to reconnect with you. We had an amazing run there at Solar City, and then we merged into Tesla, looking to change the world off of this really dirty, bad fossil fuel into a new sustainable energy paradigm. It was an amazing time. Second tour of duty, I think, was better than the first, believe it or not. I got to meet great people like you, and I learned so much. And as I always like to say, relationships far outlive business cards. So it's, it truly is an honor to be on your show. I'm humbled, I'm privileged, and we're going to have some fun today. Looking forward to it. So why don't we start, for those that don't know you, would love to learn more about your story. I mean, I touched on only a few things, but would love to learn about your story, your background, and go back as far as, as, as you can and just share kind of your journey. Yeah. God, I'm trying to think where to start. Let me try and simplify things. As I kind of think back, there's, like all of us, we have set points in life, things that really sort of change our course direction, things that really drive us into a certain path, so to speak. And I recall back in the late 1970s, I believe I was a junior in high school, my dad had brought home this little home computer. He had a modem. We plugged it into our phone and I remember dialing in. My dad was a, a guidance counselor and he went to this uh, application online that was all about filling out some questions and that hoping to give you some career guidance. So I just remember hearing that modem. I'm really going to date myself right now, a, kind of a dial tone and some <laughs> clicks. And then I remember all of a sudden the screen started flooding with some characters and I was just blown away with technology and blown away with computers. So when I started college, I was a business major, economics major at Southern Connecticut State. And I uh, wasn't until my junior year, I took a programming course, it was Fortran. And I just knew at that, and this was on a punch cards on a IBM 360 <laughs> mainframe system. And I remember at that time, like computers and technology are going to change the world in ways that I can only imagine. And I got excited about that and really followed a, a strong career in technology Started out as a software test engineer. I did some programming. I have this inside joke of what do they do with mediocre subpar programmers and make them product managers. So, and part of that's just finding really what you're good at. And it's not really about following your passion. Passion follows stuff you really enjoy doing that you really get excited about. And I started really learning about how to create great products. And when I was struggling as a programmer, I've been really blessed in finding great mentors throughout my career. And at the time, there was a guy that worked for Nolan Bushnell at Atari. I was working at this company called Coleco. He was just a fantastic mentor to me. And I was telling how frustrated I was. Uh, we had other programmers that went to MIT and it was hard to hold a candle against someone and their programming skills at MIT. But he said, Toby, what do you want to do with your life? I said, I want to start and run my own business someday. He said, great, go into product management. It's like a mini CEO job. You've got to learn about what is an unmet need in the marketplace, how to develop a set of requirements, work with engineers, work with documentation people, work with the sales department, work with the marketing department. And I really followed that path and that career, ultimately getting to a point at Novell where I was running a billion dollar business there. And at the time, it was the third largest software business in the world behind Windows and SAP. And then this thing called the internet was born. And I remember downloading a Netscape browser. I remember going to the site in France called the Louvre and was journeying through the most amazing museum. And thinking like, oh my God, like I'm in this place right now. And it was at that moment where I knew the internet was going to change the world in ways that 
Again, we could only barely imagine at that time. And myself and a kindred spirit had put together a business plan and a vision to create the world's largest web development company. And that was my first time setting out, becoming an entrepreneur. And my life changed at that point in time. It was an extraordinary run. So when you first had your taste of entrepreneurship and you started this this company that took off, became the world's largest web development company, and you had what? half of the Fortune 500 companies that you did business with. I mean, how do you take that on as a new entrepreneur? Was it overwhelming? Did you feel a sense of almost imposter syndrome? I mean, I can only imagine how both challenging and rewarding that was all at the same time. What was the emotional mindset that you had going into this? Yeah. So I'm going to get a little bit philosophical with you right now, which is that, and I I had the opportunity, I wrestled in college. I went on to do some cage fights in my 40s and you know, really look and push my creative boundaries. But everything in life starts with confidence. And it doesn't mean that you don't question yourself. It doesn't mean that at times you're wondering if you're good enough. That's normal human behavior. But at the core of it, it's all about being confident in yourself. And I've always had that, not overconfident, not brash, not arrogant, but just a a sense of confidence about yourself and loving yourself and loving people around you. And the vision is really what drives you and this endeavor, which was all about embrace naivete. And that's Mm. what I've always done. It's not, well, I can't do this, I can't do that. It's like, find the things that you can do in life. And I was so excited. I felt like we had this great idea. We went out and raised money from SoftBank Venture Capital. And I never thought about it. I'd never run a professional services company. I was never an entrepreneur. And everything was brand new to me. And I embraced it. I loved it. And it was really taking that naivete. Because lots of times... All this experience sometimes closes your thinking down. So if I'd already been running, you know, working at McKinsey or some other large consulting company, I'm not sure I'd have the right DNA to create the world's largest development company, have a successful IPO and do the types of things that we did. So I am always a big believer in studying martial arts. It's really all about how to take energy and how to flip it and use it in a different direction. And this was a perfect example of that, which is taking this lack of experience And just taking that naivete, instead of it being a liability, you turn it into an asset. That makes a ton of sense. And I heard several insights in there, not least of which is the importance of confidence. I often bring this up to my seven-year-old who's still learning his confidence, right? At that age, you're developing your confidence. And I just know how critical it is to have that inner confidence. And to your point, it doesn't need to be arrogance. That's taking confidence and taking it way too far. It's having confidence in yourself and belief in yourself that is so, so valuable. And then the other piece about embracing the naivete, I mean, it makes a lot of sense because often when you know too much or you think you have it all figured out, it stunts your ability to perform and it causes you to make decisions almost in a vacuum. And there's this rookie smarts that you get when you don't know everything and you have to figure it out. Um, I'm curious, as you look back and you reflect on your life, what other insights stand out immediately as you look back at the pivot points in your career, whether that be in, in your own kind of livelihood and the job that you had at the time, or just life in general, what are some other insights that stand out to you? Yeah, that's a really great question. I think that where you want to look to are the challenging moments in your life, the things that have gone sideways. And it's really those difficulties where you learn the greatest lessons. So for example, at Novell, we went through a CEO change 
And um, the first CEO there was absolutely amazing. I used to work for Jack Welch at G. He was an amazing CEO. The leadership qualities that he exuded that I was able to, I guess, maybe take for granted. And at the time we were going through a change, he had stepped down. We brought a new CEO on board. He was very bright. He worked at HP. He ran their large server business. But when he came into Novell, he knew nothing about our culture. He knew nothing about our customers. He knew nothing about our sales channel. And I think he had an air of arrogance. And it was clear he was taking the company in a direction that I didn't think was going to be successful. So instead of having a really bad attitude, instead of looking at all the negative things that were going on there, I focused on what can I do to be successful at this time here? But more importantly, it was that time where I wasn't happy, I wasn't motivated, I wasn't inspired. And I flipped that, used that jujitsu that I talked about and found the courage and the strength and the ingenuity to start my own company. And as I look up at those opportunities in life, you really do learn from your mistakes and having uh, an appetite for risk and really putting yourself out there during those times when it's easy to do less. It's all about how do I do more? How do I use my creative spirit in a way that can transcend this, this moment in time that I'm at? So I really looked at those times in my life where things weren't going well And again, instead of being bogged down into the negativeness and what's not going right, how do I change my mindset? How do I change the path that I'm on? And it was those moments in time where I think I reflect back on that, where I had an opportunity to learn so much, to be inspired, to be a risk taker, to put myself out there and to fail and find those moments in time where you're really challenged personally, you're really challenged at work. And those are where the greatest opportunities lie. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I, I think this is a theme that, that I hear over and over again from people that have had extraordinary success like yourself. It's not being afraid of failure, but it's being able to embrace the failure that, failure that you have and make the adjustments in your life, in your business to learn from what happened and help you become the person that you are. And whether that mean in your case, you're, you're starting your own business and, and learn from the examples that were set, either positive or negative, and, and learn from the mistakes that were made and, and make those adjustments. You know, I've heard you talk about regrets and really living life without regrets. And I, that's a philosophy I believe in my core. I used to have on my baseball hat, no excuses, no regrets. And it's not that I don't think that I, I, I've made plenty of mistakes. I've failed a lot in my life but I, I want to learn from those mistakes. Talk a little bit about when you started to realize that regrets were something that you just didn't have. Yeah. You know, coming off of this huge success at US Web, I know for a fact I was arrogant. I know for a fact that I was full of myself and overly confident. And it took to have some failed startups where you see true character emerge and the real lessons emerge. And I've always preached this in every um, organization that I've worked at, both from a personal and a professional standpoint, is that you can never judge someone's character when things are going well, because everyone is going to be great, right? Oh, we're making our number this year. We created a great product and on and on and on. But when stuff really starts to go sideways and the shit starts to really hit the fan, how do people react in those moments in time? Do they flee? Do they run? Do they start pointing fingers? Do they play the blame game? And it really is those times where true character is what I look for. And it was those times where have to have those failures, I think, where I could become humble and really start connecting with the true person that I am and set me off on a really interesting sort of spiritual journey. 
I think those are you know the moments in time that that are really gifts and cherish those that build character, that build resolve, that open up your mind to think differently, to think creatively, and really sort of give you some introspection to start thinking about the world you live in, this time that you have in this thing we call the human body, and thinking about the kind of person that you want to become, the kind of character that you espouse to be and you want to reflect. And more importantly, what indelible mark are you going to leave on planet Earth when you leave? And I do think we all have a deep, deep sense of responsibility to ensure that we're creating an opportunity and an environment and a planet and an economic system that can benefit future generations to come. And I think we've got a lot of work to do to to course correct the current path that we're on today. Yeah. And I know you've spent a lot of time both thinking about this, but also acting in ways that will help us in all of those areas. You've also in the past described yourself as a restless soul which I, I, I find that fascinating. And I, I completely relate to that. But describe, when you say that, what do you mean? Yeah, a restless soul. That is someone who's never satisfied. And I think that you, it's almost like if you've gone through a really tough workout and you're ready for just sucking down a gallon of water and it's having sort of this, this thirst that you just can't quite quench. And that's when I sort of look at a restless soul where always striving, always driving, have a sense of urgency, a sense of purpose in your life. And um, that restless soul has really driven me in such amazing ways where I just don't accept the status quo and think about how do I create a better version of myself? How do I change the world for the better? Um, what kind of indelible mark do I am I trying to leave on the planet? And that restless soul, I think, lives in all of us. And if you just give it a chance to let it come out, um, let it drive you a little bit, sort of step out of this world that I call, you know, the zombie world and, and the path of many into thinking differently. And that's the thing that makes our species so special here on planet Earth, which is that we all have this incredible, infinite ability to create. We're all born with it. As a matter of fact, if you ever hear Jeff Bezos talk, he reflects back on when he wants to be his most creative he puts himself back into the six-year-old mindset. And if you think about, you know, if you spent any time with young children, there's nothing they can't do. The world's an amazing place for them. They're happy. They're smiling before they enter this, you know, zombie world or the super structured world or the status quo world. Um, it's just literally, you look into their eyes. I've got a one and a half year old grandson. And all I, as I see is like wonderment. I see excitement. I see infinite capacity to think and create and that's the magic that we all have, right? And that you can tap into that any point in your life. You just have to decide to do it. Man, I, I don't even know where to begin because there's so <laughs> much that I want to talk about. I'm like, oh, I want to talk about that. No, no, that. Let, let's let's talk about this child mindset because I know you've both studied yourself, but also really taken on the, the studies of others with regards to the, the human brain, specifically looking at the, the brain of a two-year-old and then of a 25-year-old and then of a 50-year-old. And you're right. We we have these neuropathways that are created over time that really do ultimately limit our ability to think creatively. And if we could all have the imagination of a child, imagine what the world could do and what we would be capable of. Can you share a little bit about what you've discovered in that realm? 
Yeah. So as you pointed out at the beginning of the show, I'm so blessed. I just finished teaching my ninth year of entrepreneurship at Stanford. It's an amazing place. It's an amazing opportunity. And one of the speakers that we booked several years ago was Dr. Eagleman. He's a world famous neuroscientist. Um, You can go look him up on YouTube. He's incredibly gifted. He wrote a book. I read it. It was a fantastic book, but he really educated me in our class on that that dynamic, which is that they imaged the brains of two-year-olds and basically measured neuroplasticity, which shows the volume and size of your neural network. And obviously the larger it is, the bigger the network is, the more creative that you are. And over time, and 100% of all human beings, they remeasured that neuroplasticity, fast forward 25 years, so at 27 years old, it had, it had degraded 25%. And then they re-imaged 25 years later, and it had then, again, degraded another 25%. So a total of 50%. It's like anything in life, right? If you stop using it, then you lose that capability, you lose that skill. If you started playing guitar or whatever passion that you have, you stop playing that or stop playing basketball, then your skills begin to erode. Yep. Your brain works exactly the same way. So the challenge really is that, how do I not lose all this amazing gift that I'm bored of this neuroplasticity? And there's so many great things that you could do and unlocking your unlimited ability to create to create many awesome things in the world, right? And so Dr. Eagleman just did a fantastic job of talking to our class about that. And it just really inspired me to think about the world differently. When you don't use a muscle, it's amazing that the atrophy that, ex- that happens as a result yeah. in your brain, guess what? It's, a, it's the big giant muscle. And, and while we're on the subject, you know, you shared something in a, in a talk that you gave to some Stanford students. And it really resonated with me because the whole inspiration of this show called Insight Out is to talk about these aha moments that we have as human beings, which it's a sudden realization or a deep understanding that exists because we have realized something. It's almost like it hits you like a ton of bricks over the head. It just makes so much sense all of a sudden. And what I've realized and some of the people that I've studied, including uh, David Rock, who came to speak to our group at Tesla, is that we are able to have more insights when our brain is quiet. And what I mean by that is, you know, the prefrontal cortex, which is the small part of your brain right behind your forehead, it allows us to do most of our conscious thinking, whether that be problem solving or decision making or inspirational ideas, critical thinking, it's our conscious brain. And what David Rock says is that part of our brain, if we were to compare it to sort of a, in, in an economic sense, that would be the change in our pockets. The rest of our brain, the unconscious part of our brain is like the entire US economy. And so clearly th- there's a vast difference between this part of our brain that does this critical thinking, yet that's the part of our brain that we're using all the time in business. And we're using it to do the th- type of thinking that we need to do to be successful. And so if you ever go on a walk or take a shower or work out or kind of do something to allow your brain to have a little bit of peace and quiet, you're a lot more likely to have an insight. And so as I heard you speak to your to your group of Stanford students, the thing that you talked about was brain waves and looking at, you know, your your beta and 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 theta and and all the different types of brain waves that you would have as a human being and the studies that people have have had regarding the types of brain waves that exist when they're thinking. Wondering if you can kind of dive in in this space and talk a little bit about what you've discovered and how brain waves actually matter to our ability to think and to have the types of insights that we need to have more frequently. Yeah, that's another really great point, Billy. So 
I believe that we live in the most manipulated, most brain pollution era of humanity. If we just start to think about that for a second, how much of your time and brain is consumed by media, your cell phone, email, text messages, instant messaging apps, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, the list goes on and on. And when that is basically just consuming, there's only so much capacity that your brain can handle at any any point in time. As a matter of fact, I'll ask a trivia question of your audience members out there is that what percent of human beings can, can really multitask? Mm-hmm. And the answer to that is less than two and a half percent. I mean, we try to, we're context switching all the time, but we, we can't do that. So when you are literally just absorbed by all of this technology that is absorbing all of your attention, all of your energy, all of your brain, then there's no capacity and there's no room to do anything else other than I got to get that email done. I got to pick up my kid from soccer practice. Let me check my voicemail. Let me check my phone. And you're just completely absorbed. So you literally have got to unplug and having that discipline, that ability, and we'll talk a little bit later in the show of how to actually do that. It's a whole combination of things of how to settle your mind, how to get your brain waves into a state where they can be the most creative, the most productive, and put you in into an entirely different space of presence, of being present, an entirely different concept called flow. And they've talked about flow. Um, athletes talk about this all the time. You're down from LA, maybe you're a Lakers fan, but I remember you know, if you ever watch Kobe Bryant play and some of these other, Larry Bird and these other great athletes, is that when they get into this period of called flow, they're not really thinking about anything. Mm-hmm. All their shots are draining. And we've all had these experiences in life. You can actually have more of those, not less. And it's really focusing that time to get yourself into this brainwave pattern where you can be the most creative. That's where the greatest ideas come from. That's where peace comes from. And all the magic of life is really at that apex of getting those brainwaves into that, out of the state of chaos, out of the state they're they're completely monopolized by 21st century living into an entirely different new conscious space. And it's crazy how much science is, is behind this. Yeah. I mean, you, you've cited something that I've talked about for, for years, and that is, have you ever driven from point A to point B and then not even thought about the fact that you just drove from point A to point B? You're subconscious. You're just kind of on autopilot. And I, I think when Kobe Bryant's in his flow, that's probably where his brain is at. He's, he, he, it just becomes a part of him. Curious, as, as we explore the, the different types of, of waves, wondering if you could share your knowledge in terms of what we're thinking when we're having those the baseline, you know, beta waves when we're when we're kind of doing our day to day. How do those vary from uh, the different types of brain waves that that exist? Yeah, so those those beta wave patterns are moving at and oscillating at a a fairly high hertz level. So you know, if you almost think about sort of an EKG, and if it's going off at you know very very rapid rate, that's how most of you're spending your life in your day in these in this beta mode. And there's an alpha mode, there's a theta mode that you talked about. And that really is where you want to be. That's really where all the most creative thinking can occur. And actually, the the science behind it is a lot deeper than that. And there's another component of this called coherence. 
And both your there's what's called brain coherence, getting those waves in, in, a, in a more coherent pattern, as well as heart coherence. And there's technology around heart rate math and other variable um, mathematical studies and algorithms that, that are measuring this. And it's the best analogy that I can give you is you think about, for those that have ever had a music lesson, there's a, uh, a device called the Metrodome that keeps track of the beat of the piece that you're trying to play. It ticks back and forth. And that's, that's the beat of that. So if you imagine going into a room and there's a thousand of these metronomes and they're all going off in, in their own different, in, in an incoherent way. That's largely how your brain's operating in a beta phase most days where there's just tons of noise. Your body's not moving in rhythm. Things are completely preoccupied, completely out of sync. There's no coherence in there. And then when you're able to unplug from that, lots of folks find meditation, other crafts, going to a cooking class, going to a painting class, learning to play guitar, a walk in nature, a walk on the beach. There's so many ways to unplug to get yourself into more of an alpha or gamma state where your brain can calm down, your brain can really relax, and then that's when the magic can really occur, where there's nothing that's impossible, completely changing your attitude, completely changing your mindset into shifting, whether it's making the job you currently have better, bringing more energy into that and light into that, that period of your life or that job that you're in or thinking about the next thing that you want to do and how to stay on this really, really creative path, how to really think differently. And then your brain starts to work in a much more coherent way and your heart rate comes into a much more coherent way. It's healthier for you. It's Think about you know when your body can really align itself with this extraordinary um, energy source that is pulsing throughout the entire universe. And I was reading another article recently, which is if you think about the, the length of the Mississippi River, I think it's about 2,500 miles long. And so think about that as the extent of all of the different energy frequencies that exist in the universe. We're able to comprehend less than an inch of that. So this ability that we all have to tie into, you know, I, I believe in a greater power. I don't think we have to get into a religious conversation today, but I absolutely believe in there's something after this human life that we have. And it's too, you know, to think about the universe, how infinite it is, how, how little we really know about that, 13.8 billion years old to what we know. And then just, just think about planet Earth for a second, four and a half billion years old, existence of human conscious humanity, just in the, in the very last stages. But just think how glorious and beautiful this planet is the beautiful biodiversity that we have here, the magicness of it's the right distance from the sun, it's rotating at the right spin rate. All these things have to occur. It's hard to think that this is really random or there's not some intelligence to the universe, intelligence that lives in us all. And I, I believe deeply in that. And that's what we all have this ability to tap into, to change the world, to do things that we really want to do. Think about the legacy that we want to leave behind and start, really being inspired by how do we set up future generations to come? That's what gets me really excited. You've touched on a topic that I really want to explore, which is the future generations, which I know is something that's near and dear to your heart and something that really has become a, a huge passion of yours, not least of which because you're exposed to new ideas and thoughts just by virtue of being a lecturer at, at Stanford. I'm sure you're encountering and meeting all sorts of incredible young talented and passionate individuals that are just hungry 
to change the planet. And so I'm curious, you mentioned something on one of your talks and it was, it was talking about an insight that you had when you watched the younger generation, specifically the students that survived the Parkland shooting and how that really was a, an insightful moment for you to observe and see how they dealt with this, this situation. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I th- that moment was definitely a set point for me. And it brought into, you know, kind of eight years of focus at, at teaching at Stanford. And it was a, an amazing moment as I remember tuning into CNN and seeing several high school students on camera and the sharing their point of view with the most incredible intellect, clarity, deep understanding of the issues. Unfortunately, today we're dealing with two other mass killings in Texas and in Ohio. And I remember listening to these students talk about their positions on policy issues around gun control. And they were so articulate that they were so far ahead of where I was in high school at that time. They were so far ahead of where I was in college at that time. And it was just a really an an, an incredible awakening for me and gave me incredible hope that this future generation, Generation Z, is thinking about the world like no other prior generation of its time. And I think part of that is, you know, the internet's got is both a, a curse and a blessing. As we opened up this show, I tend to, you know, I think about people asking, was the glass half full or half empty? For me, it's always overflowing. And I think about that that opportunity and that I remember doing book reports back in fourth or fifth grade. <laughs> um, we had World Book Encyclopedia. And that, like, that was the extent of my knowledge of going to the library. And you think about the body of knowledge that exists today. It's extraordinary. As I look at the value that I think that's created for future generations to come, which is to acquire knowledge at a far faster rate than any other prior generation, how to assimilate that, and how to turn that into wisdom. And I know that in my teachings, it is just amazing to see the type of people that they want to become. It's it's completely different than any other prior generation, even millennials. I've got two daughters that are millennials, and I'm seeing something very different. They deeply care about the people they want to become, the kind of character that they're aspiring to build, the types of companies they want to create, the types of companies that they will work for, the types of companies that they won't work for, the types of cultures that they'll accept, the types of cultures that they will reject. They're concerned about the planet. They're concerned about our economic system, concerned about all these significant paradigm-shifting issues. And I'm so refreshed and so inspired to see how much they're focused on changing the world And it just, as I said, gives me just such extraordinary hope that everything is going to be fantastic, despite some of the massive challenges that we have today, a massively polarized political environment today. And to see the challenges that we have in climate change, um, the challenges that we have on an economic system that, that works for more versus few, and the way they're thinking about solving these problems. And that's where I think the magic of the world truly rests. And it's all about inspiring more creativity for greater good. That's what gets me really excited. And that's where I I, I wanna be help, be part of this movement, help inspire this movement, help electrify this movement because it doesn't need much. It's already headed in the right direction. How do we expand it? 
Right. The, the kindling's there. If we could just you know, help it turn into a roaring fire, it can't help you feel optimistic and, and, and see that water overflowing as you described. And I totally agree. And, and you've said in the past, the internet's a transformational tool, which it is. And yeah, there's, there's two sides to that coin. You, you talked about sort of the negative, right? And the social media, and, and we all see that. But the flip side of that coin is there's an awareness that's happening. There is a consciousness that's evolving and changing as a result of this knowledge that's being gained at a record level. And when you see these young people who know, no, they don't know a world where the internet is not there, right? The only thing they know is the internet exists. And so when I talk to my seven-year-old, he knows to go talk to Alexa or to type something into Google at seven years old. Whereas you and I, we would have the odd book report here and there or the odd time in the library where we'd gain some knowledge, but it's nowhere near at the level that exists today. And so I think if I'm not mistaken, part of the movement that you've created really taps into this. And I want to dive in on what a Zentrepreneur is and Zentrepreneur.life. There's a lot to it. And so I'd love to unpack that and, and learn more about what the catalyst of this movement was for you and, and, and where it's at today. Yeah. So Zentrepreneur.life, it's part philosophy, it's part set of business practices, and it really has a mission to inspire creativity for greater good. And that's the simplest way that, that I could say that. You and I talked a little bit earlier about how we all have this infinite ability to create, and it takes work to stay in that from, from a brainwave activity standpoint, from a coherent standpoint, from being sucked into what I call the, the status quo of life, which is stronger than gravity, of how to shift gears and get into this creative mindset for greater good. And that's what this mission is all about. And it's built around a interesting concept today where, you know, I think 40 million people participate in transcendental meditation, but the typical working day and time for you to unwind, they're mutually exclusive events today. So you might meditate for 15 or 20 minutes in the morning or perhaps before you go to bed, and then you're thrown right back into the lion's den. You're right back into the craziness of, of work, and I think you can actually walk and chew gum at the same time. I don't think those things have to be mutually exclusive. And I think that there's an opportunity for companies to do extraordinary things. And I talked about one company in particular that I think is the shining light, and that's Patagonia. And Patagonia, Vaughn, the founder, the thing that really resonated with me, he, had, he talked about this message to his customers, which is that, I hope this is the last jacket you buy. Now, what clothing company would wish that this is the last piece of apparel that you ever right. bought them? And actually mean it, right? right exactly. Actually mean that. He does. The company does. The company literally can walk and chew gum at the same time. Their employees love working there. One of the greatest cultures in the world. They love working there. They feel appreciated. They're well compensated for the value that they create there. They're like a second family there. They're revered by their customers. Obviously, I'm a huge fan and a huge customer, but their customers love them. You can bring your old apparel back. They're recycling. As a matter of fact, I got an email today about recycled bags that they're doing. They've hauled out like 100,000 plastic bottles out of the ocean. They're using that for the lining of their new, their new travel gear bags. And it's extraordinary to see that they can do it all. They built a great company that their customers love. They charge a fair price for their products. 
They promote and mean sustainability. They promote and mean focusing on the climate change challenge that we have. They're activists in that area. Their shareholders are super happy with the performance of the company. They've got a very strong balance sheet, employees and customers that love them. There's no reason in the world why virtually every company can't lead by example, like a company like Patagonia. And that's what entrepreneur life is really all about. Treating people really well, like human beings, treating the planet like you care about it for future generations to come. Focusing on constantly upgrading these antiquated paradigms that we have today. Political systems bought and paid for. How does that serve the people today? When lobbyists literally run Congress, lobbyists run the Senate, they run the House of Representatives, they run the Oval Office. With the fact that we're still mining and burning fossil fuel, when we know what it's doing to the planet, we know that we're creating this massive environmental debt for future generations to come. It, I, I'm getting super pissed off even talking about it because it's just so unconscionable. And where my eyes really opened up, I served on this board of directors with Dr. Richard Leakey, and he was one of the early pioneers understanding the massive existential threat of climate change. And the fact that we are rapidly eroding biodiversity, which is the key to sustainability, which is the key to climate change. And I'll share one other small story with you because I remember getting to spend some time with him on this board I was on. And he was talking about the story about hopefully some of your listeners out there have heard of this awesome show called Whale Wars. And Whale Wars is about a nonprofit organization, fleet of boats that are going in international waters with fighting these fishing boats that are slaughtering whales. They are having amazing success. But Paul Watson was the guy that started Whale Wars. He used to work for Greenpeace. And he realized that the tactics that they had been deploying weren't changing the behavior. And he pulled a page out of Dr. Richard Leakey's book. So Dr. Richard Leakey in the early 90s, was running all of Kenya Wildlife Services. He was the second most powerful political figure in Kenya at that time. His organization was 500,000 strong, and they were losing the war to, to poachers. And he decided that he's going to take some very drastic measures, some very creative measures, and he militarized a section of his Wildlife Services organization to shoot and kill poachers on site. And because of that, he had many attempts on his life as a matter of fact, someone was able to sabotage his little puddle jumper plane. It crashed. He survived. He's amputated from the knees down. But that's what gets me excited is courage, conviction, doing the right thing for the right reasons, this aspect of righteousness. And the platform is really about inspiring that righteousness, right? Inspiring that infinite creative ability that we all have, because that's where you create a great economy by completely reinventing all these broken, antiquated, old paradigms that we have, not through the traditional ways that we've done it. It's by creating great new companies, creating great new jobs that pay people really well, that are focused on greater good for more, not less. And the economy today works for very few. This generation has an entirely different point of view on the type of change that they want to have on the world. And man, they, they are going to get it done. So I, I want a front row seat to that. I want to be part of that. And that's what the platform is all about. Yeah. I mean, look, you're somebody that has walked the walk and has joined and aligned yourself with companies that are doing the right thing. 
And sadly, there are too few companies like a Patagonia or a Solar City or a Tesla. And so, you know, I'm just going to share a couple of facts that, that, that you shared, which I think would be valuable for the listeners to hear just so it hits home. So you talked about the planet, right? We only have one planet, right? So deforestation, 46% of our trees, over 100,000 acres cut down each day. Water, 1.2 trillion gallons of untreated sewage, stormwaters, and industrial waste dumped into our oceans around the U.S. The Great Garbage Patch, twice the size of Texas. What's happening to our atmosphere is ridiculous. 405 parts per million of CO2 in our atmosphere. And as you shared, that was a number that we looked at as like a a danger zone of over 400. We're at 405. And then you already touched on the biodiversity, right? Humans have already made over 83% of all mammals extinct and over half of all plants that exist. And so when I hear all those numbers, and I'm a 42-year-old man, I'm in the middle of my life, I think to myself, what role did I play in making that happen? And if I can't find something, a livelihood, a profession, a way of life to help combat that, I feel like I'm squandering an opportunity. And and I think the beautiful thing that we see in our youth is that they see this. They actually see it more than the people that are our age that for whatever reason, and I speak generally, we tend to ignore it. I'm going to ask you this question in regards to your example of Patagonia. How do we make more leaders like the person who started Patagonia and more companies like a Patagonia? How do we make more of those? Obviously, you have a lot of things that you're doing with with entrepreneurship, but there needs to be more. It can't just be one philosophy or one idea. There needs to be more and, and, and people need to believe in it. What, what other ways can we create an environment that fosters more companies that do the right thing, that can chew gum and walk at the same time? Mm. So the good news is it's it's already occurring as we sit here and talk on, on your show today. So for example, we are in one of the greatest cycles of venture capital investment in the history of humanity. Venture capital firms will invest well over $150 billion this year, perhaps setting an entirely new record. And I believe that we are in for at least a decade, if not a full additional generation of massive investment capital and innovation, disruption, and new great companies that are really going to go out there and change the world. And I don't think we're going to be far away from a trillion dollars invested every single year of brand new working capital to fuel some of the greatest ideas. That's where the change is going to occur. It's not going to come from government. It's not going to come from big corporations. It's not going to come from Wall Street. It's not going to come from big pharma. It's not going to come up from our messed up healthcare system. Those are old ideas. Those are old paradigms. And this new generation who has guys, you know, think about this today. You have the mind of humanity in the palm of your hand. That that has never occurred before. And you talked about this is that it's a tool, right? For those that understand how to use the tool, it is the most powerful tool and capability that humanity has ever seen, right? And understanding how to use that, which this Generation Z does, and how to apply that in the most creative way forward to solve some of the biggest, most taxing challenges that we have is a sight to see. So I see all of the work that's going on in social impact area. 
I see all of the work on, for example, just new companies of how they're restructuring their cap table. So more of the equity is going to the cause that that they want to focus on, more of the equity that's going to the employees that are there to helping build value for that new company. And we haven't seen anything yet. The ideas around changing the energy paradigm, the ideas around changing social impact, the ideas around changing education, and all of the, the work that has to get done, it's already in the work. It's sitting at kind of a seedling state right now. And I think that AI, artificial intelligence, will never be able to replicate the human mind. And that's where the magic is, right? Which is this infinite ability to create, which I've said so many times on your show today, which will never be replicated by AI. So yes, we should be concerned. Some of the statistics show as much as a 30% unemployment rate by the year like 2030 or 2035. That's around the corner. So thinking about, I don't care if you're a large, stodgy 50-year-old company that you can't do business the same way in the 21st century and be successful. Everything's going to be driven off innovation. So whether your starting company gets acquired, hopefully gets acquired for good, and that gets injected with that new DNA of that, that corporation, uh, that can change that culture and, and actually help that company walk and chew gum at the same time. But we are going to see the most massive wave of new companies that are going to disrupt, that are going to innovate, that are going to change these antiquated paradigms that we all have. And it's already on track. People like you and I talking about it. Uh, entrepreneur life is just one small piece to the puzzle. Um, I'm humbled that can be part of this, but it's all about contribution. Where magic comes in, where change occurs for good and bad, it's all about organic grassroots effort. Nothing's ever going to happen from the top down. Nothing's ever going to happen in the corner office, right? And that's where I see a groundswell of the most amazing ideas. And not only just at Stanford, UC Santa Cruz, at San Jose State, community colleges that I that I have the opportunity to go and speak at. I'm seeing it all over the place. Now, you don't have to be an entrepreneur in, in the sense of, a, I have to go start my own company and create a new product and value. It's all about a spirit, a entrepreneurial spirit, which is bringing that innovation to maybe the large company that I'm working at. The right set of values, the right set of culture. If you're in a manager position, how are you going to lead your employees? How are you going to inspire your employees? And there are roughly about 22 principles that it's just the start of a dialogue. It's the start of a conversation. I want to open source those. And where they originated from, these, these, these entrepreneurial principles, was really from my students at Stanford, nine years of teaching there, having the opportunity to work with some of the greatest business minds uh, on the planet, Elon Musk being one of those. And my work around spirituality and Buddhism and Zen, incorporating that into a conversation. And that's where we're at right now. So I'm inspired. I'm excited. I want to be part of this movement. And man, we we are going to change the world in ways we can barely imagine as we sit here and talk today. Yeah, I know. I mean, you're getting me pumped up and you, and you brought up, you literally took the words out of my mouth because I was going to bring up your, your 22 ethical principles, which, which as you uh, share on, on the website, which are centered in gratitude, equanimity, natural life flow, service mindset, and, and really a deep connection to nature. It seems to me that, that that evolved and developed through the students, if I'm hearing you correctly. And curious if you could share a little bit more into the creative process of, of how those were created 
but then also talk about, I know last year you did the, the Zentrepreneur Symposium series. Want to hear how that went. You did that in partnership with UC Santa Cruz with the vision of, of taking it out to other colleges and universities. Because to your point, it's grassroots, right? How does this spread? How do we get this to transfer to, to more people? Well, it happens uh, not from the top down, but from the bottom up and, and, and throughout. So curious, you know, the creative process on your 22 ethical principles. And then where are we at with the symposium series? Yeah, great question. So I would label it as a, a monster experiment. And think of it almost as mixing some very unique ingredients that have never been mixed together before. So one batch of ingredients has come from Stanford University. Nine years, you know, teaching some hundred students a year, getting to know them, getting to understand them, hearing their aspirations in life, thoughts in life, types of things that they want to change, the type of people that they want to become. So it was taking a big chunk of those ingredients then reflecting back on my time in businesses, the time that I got to interact and see how Elon Musk is looking to change the world. People like Lyndon Rive, studying Steve Jobs from afar, reading a number of books, but really taking what I call sort of the best business principles with Generation Z principles, and then taking some of my spiritual journey around Zen and Buddhism and Catholicism, Judaism and others, and taking the best elements of that and mixing that set of ingredients in as well. So best business practices, spirituality, college students, and that's that's the beginning of a conversation. How did the symposium go? I'm excited to hear because the the talent that you had lined up as as the guest speakers was phenomenal, and I'm I'm sure every session was filled with insights. How, how did that go? And and are you planning on doing another one? Yeah. So what I tried to do with the Zentrepreneur Life Symposium series is how do we take this you know great program that we have at Stanford, which is a very elite school, and how do we bring it to more schools? And there's nothing like hearing real life stories of you know ethical Zentrepreneurial type entrepreneurs that are thinking differently, that want to walk and chew gum at the same time, that want to create great companies that their employees and their uh, customers revere, that are changing the world, um, that are busting through old paradigms. So that was the first experiment that we had last fall. UCSC was super gracious in wanting to host this program. It was a four-week series. Every Tuesday evening at seven o'clock, we met in the engineering school and had to bring some extraordinary speakers into the, the setting in there, which was beautiful down here in Santa Cruz, California, where I say the universe touches planet Earth and shared their entrepreneurial journey. Share not only you know what went right, but more importantly, like what went wrong? What would you do differently knowing what you know today? And that's really where the, that's where the teachings come from. That's where the real hard lessons are learned is in those mistakes that were made. And you talked about this at the beginning of the show, which is the element of not living with regrets. Now, let me just clarify this a little bit. Of course, like any human being, I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to continue to make them today, tomorrow, and as long as I'm on this planet here. But I don't have any regrets at all. As a matter of fact, the way uh, an Oso wrote about this was a famous Indian guru and philosopher, which is that when mortality reaches out to you and that moment comes, it's a much easier process if you've lived your life without any regrets. And just think about that. Let that sink in for a second. When you're there on your deathbed, are you thinking about, I should have did this, I should have did that. And I was too conservative and I wasn't a big risk taker and, and on and on and on versus that you have the opportunity every day to change your life, to create a mindset 
of why, why you can't do anything or playing the victim card is that there's nothing stopping you except yourself. And that's what I learned through my journey is that the only person that can stop you is you. And the more people you hear telling you that you're dumb or your idea is dumb or you're never going to be successful, that's what gives me motivation. The more you hear of it, that's when you know you're on the right track. Because those people lack the vision. They lack the ingenuity. They lack the skills needed, the creativity to actually be a change agent, to go out and whether it's starting a new company, changing the existing culture at, at the company that you're working with right now, or solving some significant problem in your community, in your town, in your state, in your country, or on a worldwide level. So the focus is really looking at, can we create something that's repeatable that can bring this magic to the students? Because what I hear time and time again is that all these universities and community colleges, they're really lacking in entrepreneurial studies. If you think about it, it really is an emerging science and it's part science and it's part art. And the Stanford's always been a you know very cutting edge school on the forefront of innovation. And they've definitely been ahead of this curve. And I want to take what I've learned there and my experiences there. How do we bring it to more students? How do we bring it to more universities? And this is the start, just that attempt trying to do that. Yeah. And I think it couldn't happen at a better time. You, you already highlighted this a bit, but I want to go a bit deeper in, in where we're at today in this unique moment in time. And you, you used a Greek word to describe where we're at right now. And I don't know if it's one that you used quite frequently or not, but I was inspired by it because I think life is about timing. And when we can do the right thing at the right time, magic happens. And the, the, the task at hand is no small one to engage, inspire, motivate, and provide the type of guidance, direction, and, and insights that will help the youngest generation do the magical things that they're capable of is, is a huge endeavor. It's, it, you can't take it lightly, but want you to maybe just describe again why, why we're at this point and maybe if you could share the, this Greek word that describes the moment we're in. <laughs> Absolutely. So the term is called kairos and it's a Greek word that means a unique moment in time. And all of us have experienced this through life. We talked, you and I talked about this at the beginning of, of this show today, right? These set points that really changed your life. For me, it was uh, seeing these, again, uh, this home computer and seeing these characters flashing on the screen led me to take some college programming courses that pushed my career in this direction. And the time at Novell where we had a CEO that I felt um, was taking the company in the wrong direction and that giving me motivation again to, to Kairos moment, so to speak. And I think humanity's at, a Kairos moment right now. And there's some significant challenges that we have looking at, you, know, you touched upon this, which is just the extraordinary climate change issues that we have today that are existential. And I'm going to share some worse news with you in that the CO2 levels have now climbed to 415 parts per million. So the world leaders were really focused on not breaching 400. Well, we're at 415 right now. Thinking about the economy and the middle class and the lower class is still really struggling. I've given some statistics about how take-home pay and income has not kept pace with the cost of education, the cost of electricity, the cost of gasoline, cost of basic goods and services. So there's not only consumer debt racking up, there's national debt racking up. And you start to think about some really significant problems that exist right now. And if, if we continue on the same pace, that at some point you do hit the point of no return. I don't believe we're at the point of no return. Like I'm never going to give up on humanity. I am excited. I am inspired by what this future generation, but it's going to take 
an extraordinary effort and that we don't have a second to waste. We really, really don't. The answers aren't coming from Washington. The answers aren't coming from Wall Street or pharma or big corporations. The answers are coming from conversations like this and inspiring a new generation to go out and create the right types of companies, the right types of initiatives, the right type of change. And that's where the magic is going to occur. And I feel the grassroots moving every time I step into that classroom, every time I I start a new Zentrepreneur Symposium series, and it's propagating that. And I'm starting to see that movement begin to grow. Even our conversation, and you had the opportunity to go research Zentrepreneur Life, I think get inspired by that. That's how it grows, person by person, and that's how movements really begin. But as you said, the kindling is already there. We're literally one spark away from taking this to the very, very next level, and I want to be part of that movement, and I'm excited to bring some some thinking, some really interesting thinking about part philosophy, part science, part uh, entrepreneurship, and thinking about the world and, and, and inspiring the world to think differently about how we solve some of these really great challenges that we have. And I see the, these early young companies, some of them will fail, they all do, but I see some that will emerge, that, will, that are going to change the world in ways that all I can say is wait and see. Thank you for listening to this episode of Insight Out. I hope you enjoyed the show and I really hope you took away some valuable insights that will help you in your career, in your business, or in your life. If you haven't already, please subscribe and rate the show on your favorite podcast platform. This is extremely helpful and I can't tell you how much I would appreciate it. Also, if you haven't checked out our website yet, you can find us on the interweb at insightoutshow.com. On the site, you'll find tons of great content, including all of our podcast episodes, videos, blog posts, and the all-important link to support this show through Patreon. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it's an amazing platform that helps creators gain the support they need to continue creating. And remember, your next life-changing breakthrough moment may happen when you least expect it. Insight out. (laughs) Ah, 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 ah.